this is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit over current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we were a little more shorthanded than usual, so I sat down with Lexi to discuss the transitional program by Leon Trotsky. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Lexi. Hey, it's Lexi from Planet Earth. What's up? Uh, so we're a little short-handed tonight, but uh, I think we'll work this out. Uh, we're talking about the death agony of capitalism and the tasks of the Fourth International, uh, more commonly known simply as the Transitional Program. Um, I wanted to revisit this... Um, because, you know, in a lot of ways and for a variety of reasons, um, the approach of transitional demands is kind of almost commonsensical on the left today in the way, like, a lot of things are approached. But And so much so that, like, when you try to explain, like, the concept of, like, the minimum and maximum program to people, like, they don't know what you're talking about. They don't even see the difference. So I thought it might be useful to um, just sort of, like, uh, revisit kind of the foundational text of you know, the transitional demand as a concept. And I guess before we get started, just for a little bit of context, um, this particular document uh, was the founding theoretical document of the Fourth International, and it was written in 1938. And so, here we go. So part one, uh, titled The Objective Prerequisites for a Socialist Revolution. And it, be it begins with the statement, the world political situation as a whole is chiefly characterized by a historical crisis of the leadership of the proletariat. And in this section, Trotsky basically asserts that, you know, the conditions for proletariat revolution are ripe at this point, and if not overripe. Uh, and he just kind of sort of lays out kind of where things are at at the time. I don't know if you had any thoughts on this, Lexi. It's um, often thought that Trotsky's characterization of the situation as being like a leadership crisis is pretty much one of the best examples of a left like betrayal narrative and the the concept of the fourth international the whole way that trotsky is approaching politics is like look we know the objective conditions are fine everybody knows that i mean the objective conditions are, are creating the proletariat we need right now and capitalism is building socialism in an important way right now I mean just look at the way it's developing obviously just like Mark said um, so really what's happening here is just like you know bad leadership betrayal like within these workers institutions and it's not like <laughs> it's not a real deep structural analysis despite the fact that Trotsky knows that he has to do a, a deep structural analysis and he and to a degree you know he, he believes that he is you know he, ha he has an idea of decaying productive forces and and this and he has some confident predictions about what's about to happen um, a few of which bear out and some of the more depressing ones do yeah um, well I mean it isn't hard to see you know World War two coming up I mean you know Germany's rearming and yeah. it's pretty obvious that you know the trajectory that things are headed um, yeah so and it's like you know stated yeah, and given the specific way that, like, the second and third internationals failed, you know, it could certainly be forgiven. I mean, in many ways, like, lead the leadership issue was, like, a major problem, but, you know, we can maybe talk more eventually about, you know, to what extent, like, the fourth international is even feasible as a solution. But, so yeah. that's that's how it opens. Um, like, the next section, uh, pro the proletariat and its leadership. And um, here Trotsky basically asserts uh, that the revolutionary failures of the period can be explained by the failures of the leadership. Uh, the revolutionary masses are pointing towards revolution, but their leadership is either unprepared or unwilling to take power. Um, as evidence of this, he points to like a recent series of like sit-down strikes, um, you know, that's suggesting that this points to like a rising proletarian militancy that doesn't really have a real expression in, in existing political organizations. Um, and I think that was, tr and there is some truth to this because I think you know, 
especially during the war, like in the United States, there was like a you know a, definitely like a rising ri- uh, rising wave of like wildcat strikes and sit down strikes um, that were often uh, you know had tr- had like heavy Trotskyist involvement, if only by necessity, since you know the Stalinists wanted 100 percent you know collaboration with war production for the war effort. But did you have any thoughts on this part? Yeah, not to shit on you know the the resistance against what would become World War Two, but when compared with World War One. I mean, we're really talking about a situation where people were believed in the national war, even like a lot of the the internationalists were like terrified of fascism and that kind of thing. This now, this is like a, in part three, he basically uh, lays out like the differences. Like the title of the section is the minimum program and the transitional program. Um, I think you know this is kind of like the main reason I wanted to talk about this piece. So I'm just going to quote from it here. It is necessary to help the masses in the process of the daily struggle to find the bridge between present demand and the socialist program of the revolution. This bridge should include a system of transitional demands stemming from today's conditions and from today's consciousness of wide layers of the working class and unalterably leading to one conclusion, the conquest of power by the proletariat. So then basically this characterization that he offers of, you know, the transitional program is that it originates in like the spontaneous demands of the masses but sort of points inevitably towards the dictatorship of the proletariat would you say that's accurate or do you think that that's would you say it's like a fair characterization of what he's saying here it's a it's a fair characterization of his characterization of it Uh, yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) the idea so yeah so just let's define our terms for a second um the kautskyist like kind of lingo which is you know more or less marx and engels like derived I think minimum, it's it's either minimum or maximum program that's actually used by uh, Marx and Engels. I think it might be minimum. Anyway, yeah, the minimum program is like the baseline of smashing the bourgeois state, like the kinds of things that you you would implement. Um, the maximum program would be like kind of the you know, I don't know, lower stage communism, like the coolest you know semi-state imaginable before even the state concept withers away or something so yeah um well and like the it's my understanding too that like the minimum program is the it's also in a way like a set of you know what were kind of the, what would be the preconditions for forming a government like what would be the preconditions right. for taking power that is a better description <laughs> <laughs> uh well and he he like trotsky's description of it is a bit more disparaging he goes uh yeah Classical social democracy, functioning in an epoch of progressive capitalism, divided its program into two parts independent of each other. The minimum program, which limited itself to reforms within the framework of bourgeois society, and the maximum program, which promised substitution of socialism for capitalism in the indefinite future. And then he sort of describes, you know, um, know, this sort of thing is basically, I I think he says, somewhere he talks about this stuff being basically just kind of there for Mayday speechifying, essentially. <clears throat> right, the minimum program, which limited itself to reforms within the framework of bourgeois society, and the maximum program, which promised substitution of socialism for capitalism in the indefinite future. Between the minimum and the maximum program, no bridge existed. Um, yeah, and so and also the line about holiday speechifying, which is cute and kind of true, and probably intrinsic to the way that this whole programmatism transition thing really functions um, is that we're going to have some, I mean, even something like a minimum program, which I'll get into later, like, is uh, is asking a lot. And so the transitional program is like, yeah, but the transition, you know, the, uh, the minimum program is, is for wusses. Like, <laughs> so what? You know, like, you're demanding all these things that if you put them together would mean that the working class was um in control of i don't it's 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 hard to phrase actually and i think this um this ambiguity is at the heart of the problem of neo-kautskyism like when you look at marx's old programs you know marx wants each of those individual planks but he also imagines that there has to be at least you know a revolution against the you know like the the autocratic state of course to get that to get that across, and he's optimistic about democracy, uh, or about bourgeois democracy. I, I don't know. 
I think this kind of programmatic thinking just has so much vagueness and so many like plausible interpretations that I understand why people are confused about the transitional program or the minimum program. Isn't the transitional program just a super extreme minimum program? Like, yeah, right. you know, it's not only is it going to be like that, it's going to be, you know, wage increases are going to be tied to, to prices and, you know, it's going to be even better than like a good minimum wage. Like, who cares if this will cash, uh, crash capitalism? And here's the kicker that it doesn't matter because we're in the end of days. This is it, folks. It's going the fuck down. He mistook the end of the British Empire for the end of capitalism. Right. Well, and this it's interesting because his reasoning does kind of remind me a little bit of, you know, like the decadence theory of like the ICC. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, we're, we've reached a point where capitalism is no longer in its progressive era. And so these kind of gradual reforms that could build up the working class don't really exist anymore. But the working class is going to continue to fight for its material interests. So what we have to do is we have to take up their demands, but frame them in such a way that it points beyond the system itself towards you know superseding it. Uh, and that seems to be you know Trotsky's reasoning here. Yeah, and in a way, I mean that's like perfectly Marxian and not like that crazy. The thing that makes me think that it's you know kind of suspect is that it has this apocalyptic logic. Mm-hmm. That it's premise well, yeah. on this kind of thing. Well, you can't have minimum and maximum program. Like, you know, this sh- the shit's going down right now. Like the fir- the title of the piece is literally the death agony of capitalism and the task of the fourth international, the mobilization demands for international demands for the conquest of power. Like it's literally got death agony of capitalism like right yeah. up front. And so, okay, it's a fucking mouthful and it's not a great title. That's one reason to not <laughs> call it that. But you know what's another reason to not call it that? It's called the death agony of capitalism and it's wrong as fuck. Like, a lot of the basic prognications here are wrong as fuck. They were wrong for the era that they were drafted for. And they're especially wrong to base a tendency on because it wasn't right for when it was written. <laughs> and that's that's the, that's the tragedy of this. And, you know, Trotsky, like, I, despite the fact that dude's got blood on his hands, like, I got a lot of respect for this guy. He whipped up an army out of nothing and he, you know, tried to defend... A, a workers revolution and you know yeah. was implicated and and i you know let's be real i mean he murdered a lot <laughs> yeah. he, like murdered some like revolutionaries and and like proletarians and like in in the line of service to a state that became uh pretty a shitty mustache stamping on a human face forever i mean it's it's a it's a grim image and it's there's no reason to glorify this or to, to like puff this out as like an inspiring cultural tale it's it's a cautionary tale <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, um, it it was it was inspiring for a minute, but then it got you know increasingly ugly. It was I mean yeah, yeah we said that we've talked about this a lot before, but you know the the taking of power in Russian in Russia was definitely a gamble that uh, did not quite pay off like uh, most of the people hoped it would. Uh, Look, if you only had one shot, <laughs> only one opportunity. The Fourth International does not discard the program of the old minimal demands to the degree to which these have preserved at least part of their vital forcefulness. I'm going to have to, it's uh, indef, how do you pronounce this? God damn it. Indefatigably. Why am I having trouble pronouncing I always it? hear it in, indefag, like indefat. Yeah. I only like zoom. It's a weird word. word. Because, uh, where is it? Okay. Because it's indefatigably. 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 I always say. I always say indefatigably just because that's it's on my brain. It's it's but, yeah, but. It's, it's it's like a word you'd hear on like Peabody and Sherman or something. But okay, anyway, indefatigably <laughs> yeah. it, pres- it pres- uh, defends the conquest rights and social conquest of the workers, but it carries on this day-to-day work within the framework of the correct actual that is revolutionary perspective. Insofar as the old partial minimal demands of the masses clash with the destructive and degrading tendencies of decadent capitalism, and this occurs at each step, the Fourth, Inter- the fourth International advances a system of transitional demands, the essence of which is contained in the fact that, ever more openly and decisively, they will be directed against the very basis of the bourgeois regime. The old minimal program is superseded by the transitional program, the task of which lies in systemic mobilization of the masses for the proletarian revolution. What's so weird about this is that it's, in some ways, the, 
in some ways, a lot of this is baked into kind of like any set of political demands put yeah. forth by people, you know, who are trying to, you know, ideologically direct like the movement of any p- political group whatsoever. But in some ways, it's also pa- it's in some ways it's also packaged as something being like very new. You know, it's it's very strange. It's really strange. And I think there's a tension here that is being repackaged as like an innovation or something that goes back to Marx with uh, Jules Guesde. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, wrote the program for the French Workers Party. And there's a very famous little incident for it. Like Marx wrote, you know, like the political demands and stuff like, you know, based on again, you know, oh, I'm paying attention to the workers movement. Okay, let's we're intellectuals. Let's think this over in a concrete way and present it in a kind of summarized way. Basic demands that have been kind of floating out there in the real movement that's out there. We could look at, oh, look, that's their demand. Okay, we'll put that on the fucking placard. And so the ensuing tension was that. You know, Marx wanted each of these things implemented even in a bourgeois state, like even in, you know, the the French Republic as it was like Marx thought, you know, yeah, better to have these demands puts the proletariat in like a better position to take power. Right. Uh, um, Legend has it. And, you know, I only ever hear Marxists tell this. So maybe they're bullshitting me. But Jules Guesde was kind of like, ah, these demands for fools uh-huh. you know like what we really need is a revolution and basically like when when the workers f- try to struggle for these demands and fail because they are incompatible with the capitalism like then you know then they will know they must overthrow the state you know and it, and it's like this there is a sort of deceptive element to it where you know Marx was kind of like doing this in earnest and was like yes these will be good demands that will put the workers in a better position and Guesde has a sense of like, what? No, I mean, these things, you know, struggling for these things, you're, you know, going to set people up to fail. And when they fail, they'll become revolutionaries, right? Hmm. And like, yeah, that, that's, and, that, that seems like a good description of what we're looking at here um, to an extent. Mark, Mark says to Guesde, if that is Marxism, then I am not a Marxist. Hmm. Oh, that's that that's, story. Okay. That's that story over yeah. this, over huh. this thing. That's being, you know, just glossed over as if it's some kind of innovation. Yeah, and the thing is, too, it seems like, you know, with what's outlined in the Communist Manifesto and, you know, maybe even a little more systemically in, like, the Erfurt programs, it's like, it's kind of defining, like, a if you change, you know, the balance of forces politically and, and you know, the material relations of society in terms of, like, ownership of certain aspects of the means of production and so forth, like, this will put... You'll still be within capitalism, but it'll it'll put workers in a much stronger position politically. Whereas this seems to be saying that, you know, um, we pretty much, like the seizure of power of the proletariat in order to form factory committees and form Soviets, that's the primary and pretty much only task on the agenda. And anything that, and you know, that's basically the answer to everything. And so <laughs> if we just agitate people on the demands that they put forward to it, it'll point them to the point where they get to the solution which is of course factory committees and soviets Um, right yeah so let's stop dicking around talking about all this um you know (laughs) and you know this was and you know and obviously he can be forgiven for thinking this because you know his he he lived through one of the only successful socialist revolutions at the time and especially when everything else was going to i mean things are going awful in russia too with you know with europe succumbing to fascism and rearming and you know everyone seeing world war ii coming up uh you know i can see why you know there's a high sense of urgency in the sense that this is like a deep crisis Mm -hmm. situation that would you know suggest that we need to yeah we need this we should form soviets and you know factory committees as quickly as possible and seize power and try to stop this madness but for in terms of you know it's what's more weird you know looking at this and this is true about a lot of stuff looking at this document in historical context is how does this become like the common sense more or less on the left even among people who are trotskyists that's the sad thing and if there are any Trotskyists listening, if there if there are any Trotskyists reason. still listening, <laughs> sorry. Well, yeah, no, I, 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 there's you know there's I don't know there's 
there's no reason for like interpersonal beef. It's just like, look, I was in a position around Trotskyists. In some way, I was semi grateful to them because they broke me out of you know Bernie democratic socialism. They got me to consider something anti-American, and you know, and and they were kind of right. Okay, you know, Marxism. All right, okay, but um, but it's it's a it's it's kind of a trap and when you think through these things you realize that these people are stuck in an old politics that didn't work for the the time that it was written yeah and you know a lot of really you know interesting thinkers and principled militants have a start in trotskyism but the best of them break away it's like you know post-punk right like you don't just stay playing three chords the whole time you kind of grow up mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah like yeah, yeah, you know, yeah most people don't waste your time. Don't don't waste your time on Leninism. Like like let's 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 move on. Yeah, that's it's a lot of people it's kind of like, you know, yeah, their introduction to uh activism or to, you know, Marxist left or whatever. Um it's yeah. I, don't, I I can't really I, like that was that wasn't my route, so I really don't know. I don't really know what that's like, but uh What was your route? My route? My route was guide to board. Um Ah. Yeah, I read Marx when I was like a young, young teenager, and then kind of forgot about it for a while. Then I got into art shit, and then I read like Guy Debord, and I was like, "Wow, he's right about everything." And then I was like, "Oh, yeah, I should yeah. pick up Marx again." And that's, you know, that was sort of my. And then in terms of activism, like Occupy was kind of my my route through yeah. activism. Yeah. See the the, uh, the Guy Debord situationist route is like uh, out here is uh, is a really common way into Marx, and I I think I think it's interesting because it's really not like. Uh, it's it's just coming from like a universalist kind of humanist kind of interest kind of perspective. It has nothing intrinsically to do with class necessarily. You know what I mean? It's just well, people thinking about art and shit and being like, huh, that's kind of fucked. Like, yeah, I mean, it's it's basically like Debord kind of like diagnosed the like the terminal point of the avant garde essentially, and the point yeah. to which like you know cultural production became a hundred percent subsumed to capitalism, and he's just pointing that out. But the problem is, like, there's a lot of Lukacs in it, and so then you get, like, people looking at it from, like, this uh, this ontological and this, uh, not metaphysical, but what's the term for um, the study of truth? Like, what is, it's uh, epistemological. Oh, I was going to say epistemological oh. perspective. And that's how you get, that's how you get Baudrillard, and that stuff's trash. But uh, anyway, yeah. that's, that we're, get, we're going to get off topic here, I think. <laughs> well, I, I think I think it's worth reflecting on what decadence is. Um, and decadence is pro- is nothing if not the degradation of consciousness uh, enabled by the productive forces taken advantage of by exceedingly uh, dismal relations of production where the status quo is you know smaller and more entrenched um so it is relevant and the points you're talking about with um the icc and decadence theory Uh um like there is a connection between, you know, Baudrillard and uh, Debord and uh, Trotsky here. <laughs> <laughs> That's how about that for like a set of heads? You know, there's always like the Marx. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, a, a lot of those. Um, again, a, a lot of those. You know, critical theory professors were people that were looking for a dissident Marxism, and if you were looking for a dissident Marxism that didn't capitulate to American nationalism. And and you wanted to be an internationalist without you know abandoning like what appeared to be there in some way like you, you know there was Trotsky you know like hey I helped build that yeah. thing but you know we just gotta throw another engine in it and it'll be fine <laughs> yeah yeah no I mean and you know Trotsky I, th- I think I read heard somewhere or read somewhere that like you know he approached Bordiga about it and Bordiga's like no this isn't gonna be organically tied to the class like it's not gonna work. You know, and, and, and Bordego is basically right. Yeah, the Fourth International was not like it was not a Fourth International. And what, what's I think there's like a there's like a tanky joke about it where you know like what's the first revolution passed by the Fourth International? Stop being mean to Trotsky. <laughs> <laughs> I, I butchered that joke, but I forget how what the what the original uh, one was. But I I recently read um, Natalia Sadova's uh, uh, Trotsky's uh, widow at the time. Um, um, her resignation from the Fourth International, and it's really revelatory. It's a very good document for anyone that was ever around Trotskyism. Mm-hmm. I really recommend you read it because it, you know, Sadova like knew Trotsky probably better than most of these politically motivated clowns, yeah. and articulated something that sounds like what a common sense person that was, you know, 
in Trotsky's position and that sobered up would have thought like, look, you know, don't defend these things anymore. Like this is um, Trotsky was murdered by these people. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Stop it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a a very good point. Uh, I'll say this for Trotskyism. It did produce uh, Posadaism. So, which and. Honestly, Star Trek. So. Yeah, honest, yeah, yeah. If you if you believe that rumor that uh, Roddenberry subscribed I, I to Posada's be- newsletter, I want to believe. I, like Mulder, I want I to believe. I want to it's believe. True. Well, I have to be honest. Like at the very least, it 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 would explain the plot to Star Trek. Yeah, like the backstory about like the eugenics like, wars and all that. Well, it's super Hegelian. First of all, if you watch the first episode of uh, Next Generation it's like it's the trial of humanity and you know whether humanity will be redeemed in the end like yeah. that's very Hegelian and um, there's a constant thing running through the show where oh humans don't understand this yet you know uh, even in the future they don't understand this yet but matter and mind are one I mean that's dialectical materialism or just dialectics like I, mi- I missed know, that like, I didn't what, what episode was that uh, it's in some of like the more fun ones in 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 the first season that are more metaphysical. Like, uh, see, I, I I was told I would maybe this was reactionaries telling this to me, but I was told to skip the first couple seasons that it doesn't really get 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 good till they uh, dump the spandex uniforms. But maybe that's where like all the real like Marx shit is. Well, maybe, maybe I gotta watch I mean, those. I mean, I I I I tend to agree in a certain respect because the 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 first seasons are more like the original series of Star Trek, mm-hmm. you, you might say. And they have a little more; they're a little more goofy, and also, you know, just a lot, it's a lot more faux pas, like more like you know, weird racist shit that was maybe attempting to be respectful but completely failed. Yeah. Like, like so it probably like there are aspects of the series that get better, but yeah, there's some definite like Marxy shit going on in the earlier seasons that are. Well, I know that has the episode where like the people get like unfrozen. And you know, and John Luke's like, we have given up the suit of pursuit of material gains. You know, we try to improve ourselves and to better ourselves. Yeah, like what's the challenge? Yeah, exactly. And, the, or the, and then you have like that redneck who just wants to watch TV. Yeah. He's like, yeah. And yeah. They're like, what's what's TV? This is. Um... There's uh, there's an episode where Mark Twain appears, and oh, yeah. he assumes that the Enterprise is a big warship, and he assumes that all the mixed race people that are you know mixed alien race right like people that are like make up the crew he assumed they're all slaves and they're like well you you know oh yeah columbus talked about exploration too you know like oh you know and really bringing this kind of like critical like almost you know like post-colonial voice to it like oh yeah (laughs) that that's what the the spanish said Six thirty-six. and the dutch and the portuguese it's what all conquerors say i'm sure that's what you told that that blue skin fellow i just saw before you brought him here to serve you he's one of the thousands of species that we've encountered We live in a peaceful federation with most of them. The people you see are here by choice. So there are privileged few who serve on these ships, living in luxury and wanting for nothing. But what about everybody else? What about the poor? You ignore them. Poverty was eliminated on Earth a long time ago. And a lot of other things disappeared with it. Hopelessness, despair, cruelty young lady i come from a time when men achieved power and wealth by standing on the backs of the poor where prejudice and intolerance are commonplace and power is an end unto itself and you're telling me that isn't how it is anymore that's right and you know deanna troy kind of like rolls her eyes and goes you really don't believe us do you like <laughs> yeah well he he see he watched the first season that's why because the first season is definitely a lot more like cultural imperialist because like you know you know you got like kirk <laughs> rolls up to every planet and you know tells tells the tells the indians what's what that, and how that, to... that's true yeah well the prime directive in the next generation is a lot more like you might say culturally relativistic like don't fuck with their culture idiot like stop it yeah. Prime directive I, is don't be a shitlord. Don't be a you, earth chauvinist. Yeah, we're way into the weeds here, but this makes me think, like, somebody could do, like, a really good, like, 
spin-off like maybe one-shot comic book or something that's like a Rick and Morty style thing where like you, you show the reasons for why they had developed developed like the prime directive like they went and like <laughs> fu- fucked with all these different cultures and things just went insane like in a way that you p- couldn't possibly predict or like oh somebody God. had to like or you have like a second ship that goes around like cleaning up all of Kirk's messes from like his missions or whatever and like giving like the alien women like injections yeah. for the space clap that he gave them or whatever you know, and then like that's that becomes the reason for the prime directive, and it's like secretly known as like the Kirk Act or whatever. Okay, anyway, yeah, I'm sorry. Some kind of like sh- some some kind of show trial. Anyway, uh, <laughs> space Stalinism, right? Yeah. Um. Uh, one one other Star Trek note before well, we move forward, like uh, Guinan, played by Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. Another another reason I actually got <laughs> is actually a big reason I got into communism. Uh, really? That yeah. This is because I know this about Whoopi Goldberg, but I didn't. No, know this that not not was... not her as Guinan. Uh, th- this is the link though. She uh, on an episode of Politically Incorrect, she defended communism, and that was like one of the first times I I saw somebody do that, and so that's actually part 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 of what encouraged me to pick up uh, the Communist Manifesto and read it for myself. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So uh, yeah. Um, do you want to talk about the? Uh, the sliding scale of wages and sliding scale of hours. Yes, last note about Star Trek. In the official history, <laughs> the uh, revolution that happens after the nuclear holocaust is a Trotskyist revolution by name. Really? Um, anyway. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I forget which episode they spell this out, but Crix was telling me about it. Anyway. Um, That's cool. Yeah, but so we got from, from and just to backtrack to, you know, put one... One uh, Russian doll layer out in the inception level conversation we're having here, mm-hmm. but uh, I will say yeah, Trotskyism produced Posadaism, and I am I am like yeah. this close to becoming a Posadaist right now. I so, think there's some kind of like all I don't know, I don't know like what alt left I don't know it's stupid, but like you know some kind of like weirdo like kind of meme logic to Posadaism that I think really is gonna is hitting people because it's kind of a meme and it comes from a sort of tragic circumstance but the actual body of ideas that come out of it are strangely just so, just so strangely apocalyptic and kind of optimistic in the at the same time yeah yeah exactly um we should read some Posadas for this podcast, though. I think, you know... We need Posadas in our lives. I think we need to get some more, like, Trekkies onto the show. We could, you know... That could be, like, a whole fucking deep dive. I think that would actually be something that would be... Like, if, if we wanted better nerds than the kind of, like, low-rent, D-class-A, like, fail nerds that we tend to get with radical circles, like, we should go flyer Star Trek conventions with Posadas and... <laughs> Yeah, if uh, somebody needs to investigate whether that newsletter rumor is true, because if yeah. this if it is true, we find that we make copies of that original newsletter and that's our in and be like, this is where Gene Roddenberry got the th-. you know we could do like fan panels at conventions and shit and yeah. talk about yeah somebody needs to find out if that's real or not. I think that that's that would be like, regardless of whether it is real, like the fact is, an Argentinian Trotskyist came up like cracked under torture and came up with basically the plot of star trek yeah like that's what happened regardless of whether this is where roddenberry got it he transmitted it psychically through the fucking alien atom bombs (laughs) yeah like yeah and you know what i mean even even if we could couldn't if if they didn't let us do fan panels we could be like you know because every every convention you got like crazy religious people out there like don't worship don't worship star trek you gotta worship jesus we could be like that and be like yeah no listen this is the this is the real shit right here or we could be like fuck that worship star trek check this shit out it's posadism it's marxism dialectical materialism matter and mind are one remember that episode (laughs) fucking it's already in your brains cultural marxism activate manchurian candidates form proletarian subject of star trek nerds or at the very least like this would be a good youtube video yeah right i I think it would be good i I think it would be good to do that kind of like cultural genealogy to be like hey did you know yeah a lot of things you like are because of communists yeah you'd you'd get a lot of hits on that i think um there's like a lot of like those fan theory videos that you know they can get like get like sixty thousand views easy just for having like a like a theory on why data's hair was slicked back so you, there's like an in there to you know expand your audience a little bit. But. Yo, it's fucking Swampside Chats presents. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Star Trek is communist. Ba- yeah. Bam, you know, or you know, fucking. yeah. 
uh, sliding, scale sliding scale of wages and sliding scale of hours. Yeah, so this is pretty basic. It's basically just saying, you know, oh, pe uh, people are worried about, uh, wait, you know, if uh, prices of goods going up, if wages go up, sliding scale of wages. Problem solved. Uh, well, he, also, this, he also calls yeah. for full employment, too. This reminds me a lot of, of the accelerationists, this section. Um, How so? Well, because, okay, so we have the right to full employment it, it being a, a serious right because, remember, there's going to be full automation. Like, th th I, guess, I guess that's not what's being said here, but let me, let me point this out. It's really at the end. It's this idea that it doesn't matter if anything is realizable. Re so going at, at, right at the end here. It's um, on the one hand, there's a sort of there's a, like a moral tone that's being echoed throughout here. Like, no, yeah, I'm fine, kind of reasonable. Okay, I like the morality. On the other hand, it's like um, he basically rejects any any concept that so, that the demands cannot be realized, like whatever the demands are. And he kind of more or less defends a logic of you know just just you know whatever's out there, you know, like promise it. <laughs> like, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you want, you want, you, you want your goods cheap. We get you your goods cheap. You want your wages up. We get you your wages up. What do you want? We can, we got it. Yeah, like property owners and their lawyers. Lawyers will prove the unrealizability of these demands. Smaller, especially ruined capitalists will refer to their account ledgers. The workers categorically denounce such conclusions and references. The question is not one of a normal collision between opposing material interests. The question is one of guarding the proletariat from decay, demoralization, and ruin, of life or death of the only creative and progressive class, and by that token, the future of mankind. If capitalism is incapable of satisfying the demands inevitably arising from the calamities generated by itself, then let it perish. Realizability or unrealizability is in the given instance a question of the relationship of forces, which can be decided only by the struggle, by means of the struggle. No matter what immediate practical successes may be, the workers will at best come to understand the necessity of liquidating capitalist slavery. So who cares if it fucking can work? It doesn't matter. We need to push for this because of the dignity of the workers. Which, okay, dignity of the workers, great. But, like, you don't care if it can be implemented. I guess because you think you're on the eve of revolutionary crisis. Right. Okay, maybe. I, like, like I, think, I still think this is dishonest, but just for the sake of argument, we could grant that. But basing your politics on this now is insane. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And some of this, I guess you see it in Maoism too, like the whole like from the masses to the masses, you know, like this idea that, you know, um, capitalism can't really deliver any of that stuff. So if we agitate for whatever the proletariat is demanding, then, you know, they'll inevitably go beyond capitalism, which, you know, I mean, in some level, on a base level, there's truth of that, but you have to like slowly build up the political power, you know, of the working class. Like that's something that isn't going to materialize overnight and part of the problem i think part of what is driving trotsky so crazy here or what probably probably drove him i'm not saying he was literally crazy but what you know made him so pissed off was that you know the working class built up these institutions and in the case of like the second international they got hijacked yeah. by you know the bureaucratic the narrow bureaucratic interests who wanted to accommodate to the system and then in the case of the third international you got the people who uh, you got basically the Stalinists essentially took it over in order to provide cover for Stalin's plan to build up socialism in one country in Russia. So these institutions that you know took decades to build um, have been have been truly yeah they have they were the leadership was a major problem, but the thing is you know he's seeing that right now revolution is in his the way he looks at it is revolution is in the cards right now the institutions of the proletariat have failed so we have to build a new one but you know i feel like building that takes time and you know this call to arms that he seems to be or this idea that he can maybe almost i almost i'm just thinking out loud here but i almost wonder if he's like trying to like fast track that sort of pedagogical working class thing so that to try to you know foment a revolution and, and you know and that's why you see like his call that, that's it's a way that kind of like you see why his call for soviets and factory committees make sense because those could be like ad hoc things that would be set up very quickly that could you know over overturn the sort of existing channels through which and many of which have been crushed at the, by this point and yeah, in order to implement a revolution but yeah no no no. yeah i mean if you can agitate for that i don't know i have that much important things to say i don't want to just keep you know shitting on them it's just like yeah <laughs> like 
Well, we, I mean, we we don't agree with this, so we can't sit here and be like, well, you, you know, I mean, I mean, yeah, I don't, yeah, I, don't yeah, it's like, I mean, and there, like, there a lot, there's a lot of this in a, in a broad sense. It, it, you know, it makes sense, but the other thing that you know is kind of it's, problematic it's, about it is that, well, and you see the way it's like it's it exists today with like existing Trotskyist organizations, yes. and it's it's all just That's the frustrating thing. It's all just like endless agitation, you know, like if you, if you like pick up pick up like a Trotskyist newspaper, and it's all just. At hammering home on the points of, you know, this is what, this is where we stand on this, and this is what's wrong, and we have to go hit the streets and fight, and then it, it it's just like the same like agitational like hammering points and calls to perpetual activism that is, you know, it's it's just a prescription for burnout and for not really building yeah. anything long term besides a newspaper publishing scheme. Like like on. On May Day, I ran into, or it was right before May Day, but you know, I was thinking about it on May Day. Like, I ran into this oh. this guy who was organizing. Um, who, who I don't know. He was like soliciting for like healthcare for single payer healthcare for California, and he had been doing it for like you know, he'd been like a Bernie crat for decades and decades. And he mentioned, you know, he mentioned me. I, you know, I'm just trying to get, try, just trying to do something before I die. You know, I'm like Jesus Christ. You know, like, is this guy even? You know, does he think he can do it? You know, like, is is he... Why? why? Yeah. Like, and this guy wasn't, like, a Marxist, but he was, like, an American labor guy. And, you know, if he was a British guy, he would probably be some kind of, like, flavor of, of you know, right-wing Marxist in, in, a, in the McNair sense of being a coalitionist, you know? like. Yeah. Um, well, it sounds like that guy's... That guy, I like to think just, like, on based on your script, like, that guy's been at it a while. So he probably knows how to yeah. pace, pace himself. What's annoying about like right, some of these yeah. trot groups is that they pick up like you know babies who just who you know moved out of their parents' house for the first time to go to college, and it's like then they, they get sucked into this weird like labor scheme where they end up like doing a bunch of unpaid work for this cadre or sect or whatever. You know what yeah, I mean? Unpaid like unpaid work to end exploitation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean that, that's that's basically uh, activism in a nutshell a lot of, a lot of the time, but. Um, yeah, like yeah. It, that's that's what's, like the like the old like the grizzled old dude who you know may, maybe go, you know hopefully he's retired and this is you know this is like his hobby like that's that's cool there are worse hobbies to have but this idea you know that people need to like you know grind themselves and just keep grinding on it until eventually the masses become agitated enough to rally behind the banner of the Fourth International or whatever remnant of it you happen to be existing within you know like that's what's annoying to me. Well, it just it just fucks in my head because you know, right? If this is Marxism, then I'm not a Marxist. Like, yeah. I actually think you know public health care would be a good thing to have. And I mean, I think this guy did believe in public health care. I think that you know, I think that he thought that he could he could do it. You know what I mean? And in in a way, like I feel like, I, look, I I don't know if if that's gonna actually go through even in a liberal state like you know liberal in American sense state like California, like there's just a lot of interest blocking it and it's hard to get things organized for reasons that Marxists can whinge about but don't really at the end of the day understand and you know I was thinking to myself why wouldn't I join a single-payer campaign like a single-issue campaign in the in California it's part of the minimum program right mm -hmm. like <laughs> like why why wouldn't one do that and I said to myself well it's probably not gonna work um, yeah, and, and Did, unless I can say to myself, "Well, I think this has a shot," I'm not gonna like bring people with me. Right? Did he have like a thing for you and to sign? Did, did you at least like sign his petition or whatever he was doing? Or I signed, I signed the shit out of that guy's petition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So, like, I want there's a couple more sections I want to hit on, and then maybe we can just talk about the rest of this in general if we have anything left to say. But the next section is uh, trade unions and the transitional epoch. Um, and so, like, a lot of other things, you know, Kotsky talks about it as a problem of uh, leadership. Um, uh, Trotsky, yeah. And, he, and he, rage, he raises, like, you know, he talks about how it's important to be involved in unionism. Um, and then at the end, he kind of, like, sums his position up. Um, quote, Therefore, the sections of the Fourth International should always strive not only to renew the top leadership of the trade unions, boldly and resolutely in critical moments, advancing new militant leaders in place of routine functionaries and careerists, but also to create, in all possible instances, independent militant organizations corresponding more closely to the tasks of mass struggle against bourgeois society and, if necessary, not flinching even in the face of a direct break with the conservative apparatus of the trade unions. 
If it be criminal to turn one's back on mass organizations for the sake of fostering sectarian factions, it is no less so passively to tolerate subordination of the revolutionary mass movement to the control of open, openly reactionary or disguised conservatives, quote-unquote progressive bureaucratic cliques. Trade unions are not ends in themselves, they are but means along the road to proletarian revolution. And so it, it really, like, a, there's a lot, there's, there's good stuff in here, but it really sounds like he's trying to have it both ways. And, yeah. like, the tactical outline for this is really vague. And, like, because you can interpret this any number of ways, and it would be consistent with what he's saying here. And so, some worrying ways. Like, you know, I don't know. Tra- trade unions are not ends in themselves. They are but means along the road to proletarian revolution. Like, I mean, I get it, you know. You want a communist revolution, and... But, I don't know, this, this kind of thinking... The whole thing is is very. I'm trying to read Trotsky as Trotsky. I'm trying to not like not read, like the trots or something. Or, yeah. Or even, I'm even trying to separate it a little bit from you know the historical Trotsky. I'm trying to just like consider him an abstract, but it's very difficult. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. You see, I mean, and this is the founding document of the Fourth International, and so you're, yeah. you're going to judge him by the you know offshoots yeah. of the thing that it's a founding document for, you know. Yeah, I, like I, I'm, I'm reading in a way that Marxists aren't even supposed to read. I'm not, su- I'm not supposed to give him any of this. I'm not supposed to like abstract. I'm supposed to just read him historically. And if I do, you know, something in a way that, like, one wouldn't waste breath on what he got right because he got so much wrong. But I think it's worth to try to find to abstract those things that he did get right. Yeah. You know, and there's, and, and there's some things that that are bandied about as being profound and I'm not even sure what he's saying sometimes like we just were confused about the very concept of a transitional program and what kind of really like what kind of innovation it really was yeah like well it's it's weird too because you know some people would argue that the very fourth international was uh abandoning the sake of mass organization for a sectarian faction you know what I mean like where do you where do you draw those lines yeah. You know. That's what I'm looking at right here. I'm thinking to myself, like, sectarian. Yeah, there's a whole section on sectarian. It's like, yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, I, I don't hear anyone talk about sectarianism unless they're advocating it secretly, usually. Like, look, people don't tend to mention it unless, you know, it's something they think about. Yeah. So, and it makes me think, too, because, you know, we, CLT, a lot of us have, like, joined the IWW, um, which you know is a kind of attempting to. I mean, they have like they have a few shops organized, but it's you know it's it's not super functional as a union if you compare it to any like of the major standing unions you know in the United States. And yeah. you know, so there there's always the question of you know, well, to what extent should we? And you know, some IWW members have suggested that we just try to go into like regular ass trade unions or whatever. Um, but you know, to the extent it looks like a lot of those things are pretty much fucked politically in terms of their ability yeah. to really be, like, functional, like, working-class institutions. Um, there's always, like, the question that we're facing, like, can the IWW actually, you know, reform itself or, or adjust, it, like, its, itself such that it can actually really grow in a major way and become a force for, you know, kind of reforming the labor movement. Um, so, yeah. you know, the the line that tries, you know, and I, there, a while ago, too, I got into, like, this big argument with like a local Trotskyist and he was like, well, you got to go where the masses are. And I'm like, well, but I don't know. So, so, so mass, where, where are the masses? Yeah. Where are they? Well, I was like, where are they Trotskyists? I was like, you know what I mean? where are the masses? Yeah. Well, I was half in the bag. So I was like, well, let's go to a fucking football game and table tailgate outside and we'll hand out communist literature. Cause that's where the fucking people are. You, you go to one of those fucking football games. There's like 50,000 people there. <laughs> that's what they're, that's what honestly, they're doing. Honestly, honestly, Jake, given the you know percentage of people that are unionized, I think it's like, like less and less. Football game might be a better idea. Yeah, well, and of course he looked at me like Seriously. I was, he looked he looked at me like I was a fucking moron. But I'm like you know, let me think about it, dude. In, I mean, back in the day, or even still in in Europe, the football clubs, I mean soccer clubs, you know, like <laughs> there are like you know commie and like fascist like football clubs and shit. Yeah, you know that kind of. <laughs> I don't know if you could table those places, but I mean. You know there are politics in those spaces sometimes, yeah. and I mean, why the fuck not? Honestly, that's the best. That's the best communist organizing idea I've heard in <laughs> my whole life. <laughs> wow. 
That's sad. I mean, it, <laughs> it, put, it puts the Star Trek convention one to shame. Mine is clearly petty bourgeois. Like, nah, dude, Star Pearl's like Star Trek. What are you talking about? No, I know, but I'm going for the Lego socialist. Oh, uh, okay, you know okay, I mean? okay. Like, I see what you mean. Well, think, think. I mean, come on. I mean, but here's the thing. Like, honestly, in some ways, it's actually a really shitty idea because you know, like, so much of like football, football is so tied to like you know. I mean, it was literally formed like in the era of like muscular Christianity, and like a lot of the a lot of the rules for American football were codified by Teddy fucking Roosevelt from a panel that what? he called. Really? No, yeah, the Teddy Roosevelt basically called this panel to formulate and codify the rules of football because too many white kids were getting killed on the field in the game, and those people would have been potential future soldiers for white America. So they needed to like make it safer so that they wouldn't die. That's a real thing, yo. I can't believe. That's you know what like American history is just so amazing. Yeah, and like, so and you, you know you go to any game, it always opens. They bring the flag out. They fly the fucking planes overhead if it's in a roofless stadium. So you'd be going into like deep reactionary territory. Like you, you know. Yeah, you're probably right. Actually, you'd have yeah you'd have to I don't know. I mean, you'd have to you'd have to come up with a tough sell or have like a swell crew who could like fend off the <laughs> fucking drunken you know dads out there. The co communists go to the unions to find the masses, and what you what you described, you know, is is the real situation. Like, yeah, the communists would be rebuilding the entire labor movement from scratch, and communists can't even get like a a small group together. Yeah, of of or like a, a, a coordinated, centralized, even you know, national or by state, like group of people to like calmly discuss the multiple possibilities for what to do they can't get that together and these people are supposed to around the, the world they're going to jump start the labor movement like hey, hey man we're, really? we're holding it down in tampa i don't know what the fuck you're complaining about but shit's <laughs> shit's well, tight I, down here man <laughs> i mean I, look I, be, I believe that honestly it sounds like clt is is one of the more functional orgs that has like a pr more or less kind of sober analysis of like what a task that is like because i mean you know and trotsky's saying here is 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 kind of right in a sense you need to be able to break off from shitty reactionary uh unions and i mean honestly the, the unions that exist most of the time are so fossilized that there's no no hope of, of they're, they're being really a, a center of revolutionary activity. So trying to repurpose something like the IWW might make sense. Like, I mean, I guess that's the question, right? Is repurposing something like the IWW going to be the vehicle? But, like, there probably is going to have to be some kind of new formulations or some, some kind of new labor form, and it's probably going to have to be tied to a political effort of some kind. Uh -huh. Um because the the base the base for traditional labor organizing it, you know you, you might be around something more traditional in, in Tampa but in a lot of the country that's been kind of like you know ripped up by deindustrialization or just automation yeah or yeah or automation yeah like yeah i mean yeah like, the, the i think there's going to have to be some kind of labor component i think the it there are still certain like areas where like I think the capitalism still has even in the United States like focal points that you could target and then build outward from, which is kind of how you how you have to do that. But overall, like it, the form of it, it wouldn't look exactly like classical unionism, I don't think. Um, but yeah. but I I think like the, the lesson from classical you have to take the lesson from classical unionism of finding soft spots and key places to organize that you could develop a base from. And then you could get the more like increasingly atomized section of the working class. Um, after that, I almost think you you kind of need to work backwards from the traditional Marxist way, where you you are kind of working with people in more or less cultural spaces and and like not the traditional Marxist like focal points, like and then you eventually kind of sneak into labor, like you eventually get there once you have enough social cohesion, hmm. like, and it's pretty difficult it's it's hard to have labor without social cohesion and we don't have like a, a guaranteed social cohesion anymore i don't know i don't know what do you think of that i'm not sure yeah 
I think that'd be an interesting like subject for an episode if we could find like a good reading to like situate that question around. Um, yeah, there's a good there's a good one on automation, um, but, I, but for for that question, I don't know. Like, I think it kind of goes with old school historical materialism. You know, you you have the the forces and the relations of production that determine the overall political situation, like that 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 determine. Uh, and you know, part of that is just do the workers know each other? Mm-hmm. Like, is it Uber? Right. Because like, if it's Uber, associating the proletariat, it's something the situationists uh, were, were actually kind of well-equipped to understand is, is a situation that alienating. Right. People don't even know each other, and simply associating them in just a spectacular way could be potentially political. Well, and, I mean... <sighs> I don't know how much you want to get into like the Uber debate, but like the Uber is not the entire economy, and for a lot of people, from I, th- I I would guess I don't know the numbers on this, but I would guess that for most people, like Uber is like their side hustle. You know what I mean? Like that, yeah. like they they probably have like another place of work that they're getting money from. Like Uber, in some ways, I bet is kind of just like the new like Amway essentially where it's like it's one of those things you do like to make a little extra scratch on the side. Uh, you know, some people also sell weed. You know. Like it's, I mean, there are, there are certainly people for whom they're basically taxi drivers doing Uber, but there's also probably a lot of people for whom that's like the Uber is the way they make their car payment, essentially. Yeah, no, I mean, that's true. Um, but, okay, so I got two more sections I want to hit, and then we can wrap this thing up. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so, fact, so factory committees, right? This is like a big, yeah. big plank of his approach. And one thing he does point to, and one thing that Trotskyists were you know, a big part of would be like this where sit down strikes and, you know, mm-hmm. like the wave of wildcat strikes that, um, that there would be. Um, let's see. So he, I got two quotes. I'm just going to read them real quick. Um, if the sit down strike raises this question and the question he's talking about is who owns the, who is the boss of the factory, the capitalist or the workers. If the sit down strike raises this question episodically, the factory committee gives it organized expression elected by all the factory employees. The factory committee immediately creates a counterweight to the will of the administration. He goes on later. From the moment that the committee makes its appearance, a factual dual power is established in the factory. By its very essence, it represents the transitional state because it includes in itself two irreconcilable regimes, the capitalist and the proletarian. The fundamental significance of the factory committees is precisely contained in the fact that they open the doors, if not to a direct revolutionary, then to a pre-revolutionary period between the bourgeois and proletarian regimes. So, you know, you can see him trying to like tran- you know, transpose like this transitional concept into like directly how it would like express itself in like spontaneous organizations of like the proletariat um, which is interesting yeah that's actually not so bad I mean this part yeah that makes sense and I mean and there are parts of things that happened in the Russian Revolution that I think probably would unfold in a semi teleological way like and did often in a sort like unroll in a certain way like you know from from 1905 down to like you know tehran and in the Re- iranian rev like like you know for that period there was a sort of council like logic thing that was unfolding during a certain period of industrialization that you know i'm sure some generalizations could be made about that you know retroactively <laughs> like um but but we're we're not we're not in a place right now where we get to worry about that kind of power, I guess. Like right. And and really and I don't know like, let's see. But at the you know at the time, like, dual power established being established in the factories and uh, Soviet the Soviet form and especially the Soviet form I think more specifically the Soviet form. Um, those things did re-express themselves, and uh, Panikok and the Council Communists, you know, and the Situationists and the Neo-Councilist uh, kind of groups like s- socialism and barbarism, um, they also were on the tip. But uh, moving on, I'm just going to gloss over a bunch of sections. Uh, the next section basically calls it's called business secrets and workers' control of industry. It's just calling for open books and for public works projects to create employment. Uh, there's a bunch of other sections, expropriation of separate groups of capitalists, expropriation of the private banks and statization of the credit system, the picket line, he talks about arming of the proletariat, alliance of workers and farmers, the circle against imperialism and war. Um, I want to skip down to this, and he gets to Soviets, um, and I just want to read a quick quote here. Um, oh, yeah. 
Factory committees, as already stated, are, are elements of dual power inside the factory. Consequently, their existence is only possible under conditions of increasing pressure by the masses. This is likewise true of special mass groupings for the struggle against war, on the committees on prices, and other new centers of the movement, the very appearance of which bears, fact, uh, bears witness to the fact that the class struggle has overflowed to the limits of traditional organizations of the proletariat. These new organs and centers, however, will soon begin to feel their lack of cohesion, their insufficiency. Um, and then he basically, as, as a solution to this, uh, he goes, how are these different demands and forms of struggle to be harmonized, even only within the limits of one city? History has already answered this question through Soviets. Um, and so he basically call, you know, calls for the Soviets as being the form of, uh, you know, which makes sense, you know, given his background. Uh, any thoughts on yeah, that? Or? And, uh, well, uh, like I was saying, like that period between uh, Russia in 1905 through... Um, what 1979 in uh, Iran like there there is a Soviet form that reappears in different places and there's you know probably a defensible semi-teleological theory of revolution that would have the Soviet form factor in it and I would imagine that there would be some kind of dual power analog I mean there would have to be mm -hmm. there would have to be some kind of dual power analog in a future revolution yeah and in, in particular the this political um Place because uh, the difference between the Soviet and the Factory Committee, of course, is that the Soviet is a political body. The Factory Committee is, you know, a. I mean, I guess it's political in a sense, but it's not. It's the economic administrative body for the workplace. Right. And the Soviet being more of like being part of the Universal Republic, the Factory Committee uh, being part of the small, the small Republic of of uh, Soviet labor. Right. Uh, of Russian labor or whatever. So Soviet is a confusing word because it ends up meaning <laughs> the nation. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the original reason I wanted to talk about this was because of the transitional program aspect of it and the idea of the transitional oh, yeah. demand. There's a bunch of other sections here, mostly detailing, like, kind of Trotsky's assessment of the political situation at the time. I don't really want to get into that for the sake of time. Um, but did you have any other thoughts on this piece as a whole? Was there anything else you wanted to talk about or... Anything else on this piece as a whole? Um, well, in a sense, Trotsky's situation um, of being like, well, all the existing working class institutions are so fucked beyond repair that we basically need to start over. That's, that's where we're at. Like, and I mean, Trotsky, I'm being kind to Trotsky. His position isn't even that good. But, like, if we're going to, like, gloss it, like, because he says, he at the very end, he he, he wants to offer, like, a, a spotless banner under the name of the Fourth International, like, uh, you know, something untainted by history. Like, there's a lot of practical stuff here that, you know, you just can't, like, redeem. Like, but, you know, to to not just be overly critical of all the things that he got wrong and the and you know the 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 questionable repackaging of old things the questionable suggestion that you should really be tailing basically whatever the masses want you know without thinking about you know can this be done <laughs> like yeah um, well and here's the problem like he's coming at the end of like the of the kind of the revolutionary opening of the early 20th century and so it's like a fight against time you know, yeah. that's 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 the issue. Like if he'd have maybe if he'd maybe had yeah. twenty year twenty years to build this thing up, and in leading into like the right set of like historical and political material circumstances, he'd be fine. But this is heading into basically the Cold War, where you have you know a like the victorious Soviet Russia basically dominating you know global leftist politics. Uh, you know maybe except when China decides to break with them. And for basically for not being Stalinist enough anymore. <laughs> and then on the other hand, you have the United States who are in an, who basically have complete access to the existing world markets, or at least, you know, what, what shitty, I mean, Russia basically got all the shitty parts of Europe, you know, yeah. so the United, the United States has, has, is in a perfect position to use its massive industrial base that it built up during the war. And prior to that, to have this really expansive, you know, period of, you know, welfare and, 
you know, this it builds this giant middle class and it restructures the infrastructure of the United States into this really like atomized, you know, suburban social form, right? Like it was like the worst time. Like the the, I mean, they did they the one thing that they did seize on. I think Trotsky has seized on very effectively was you know like in the United States during the war was the, the strike waves and the Trotskyists were able yeah. to back it a hundred percent because they weren't you know they weren't the tank for the USSR so they could, you know, they could get behind that. But you know beyond that, like it was just. It, the the timing was just fucked and you know he's trying to make the best of a bad situation and you know in some ways it kind of reminds in a weird way it kind of reminds me of um like bernie sanders like kind of doomed presidential run <laughs> because yeah you know he like it's he, you see what he's trying to do but it's always just it seems like it's always a waste a race against time like if he just had the things he has now two months ago then you know we'd be so much further ahead and you know and uh, but to be real to be fair to trotsky like you know this and this is a there's a sort of double meaning of course you know he was one of history's great men right like he was an individual that was situated in the seat of power and some of his decisions you know helped the course of history unroll as it did and you know the 20th century was dismal and even if you are very sympathetic to the Bolsheviks like I am what ends up happening is tragic it's disturbing and, um, you know, Trotsky is not, like, the best person to be articulating a lot of these criticisms because he's quite guilty of, <laughs> of, the, of some of the bureaucratic corruption being talked about here. Um, and, and, and so it's something very systemic that Trotsky has a truncated kind of insight into. And he does have insight into it. Um, but but he doesn't understand it because he was really susceptible to it. He was he was it like ran through him too, and so he's a very ironic, you know, Emmanuel Goldstein to put it on the front of our our you know our uh, put on our banner to say that it's not a bloodstained banner is madness. That's it for this week. If you want to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. If you want to support the show, you can like our Facebook page and or leave us a review on iTunes. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. Bye.